This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. It is probably no surprise to any of you listening that 99% of people in the U.S. who have either been sentenced to death or already executed are men. I may be off by like 1%, but the research on this episode confirmed a suspicion I already had. For whatever reason, juries and judges are less likely to give women the death penalty. Must be all that male privilege we see today. I know it isn't because women commit less severe crimes. Having been a true crime fanatic since the days of watching Forensic Files with my grandma back in the early 2000s, I've seen just how fucked up women can be. Most of the time, they're not out killing strangers, they're not hacking people up with chainsaws and tearing entrails out. They kill quietly a lot of the time with poison. Sometimes it gets a little more violent, as in the case of Catherine Knight in Australia. That bitch was fucking crazy. Didn't get the death penalty, though. Most women kill people close to them. Their husbands, their children, sometimes it's an estranged lover or said lover's new partner. Women kill for reasons entirely different to men in most cases. This is just my humble opinion, but if we're going to push the equal rights narrative so hard, it should apply to the justice system as well. If you can fry a man for killing his wife, then by God you can fry a woman for killing her husband. Equal rights means equal responsibility. Fight me. In case you haven't figured it out yet, this episode is going to be slightly different. Rather than look at a state, I'm going to look into a specific topic. I figured that would help break up the monotony a little bit. This one is about condemned women. While I wasn't surprised at all to find out that most states don't execute women, I was absolutely stunned when I realized which one has the most women on death row. It's California. What the fuck is up with that? They don't even execute people right now. They're the state where human excrement on the streets is born and freedom comes to die. How are they an equal opportunity state in this situation? Oh yeah, any Californians listening are going to hate me when I get to that episode. Our first case takes us back to the year 1953. 35-year-old Barbara Graham, also known as Bloody Babs, had an affair with one of her husband's unsavory friends and got herself wrapped up in a criminal escapade that would end in her death. Barbara was born in 1923 to an unmarried teenage mother who ended up being sent to a reform school. Young Barbara was raised by extended family and strangers. Though she was very smart, she didn't get a proper education. She ended up being arrested for vagrancy as a teenager and was sent to Ventura State School for Girls, which was the same reform school her mother had been in. In 1939, she was released from the school and tried to start a new life. She got married, had a baby, and enrolled in business college. The marriage only lasted two years before she was divorced. Imagine that, being married with a kid and then divorced at the ripe old age of 18. I was a young mom. I had two kids by the age of 19, but we didn't get married until I was 23. People back then did it all backwards. You're supposed to poop out a bunch of kids and then get married when you know he's the right one. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Calm down. It's different for everyone, and that's just how my life worked out. Anyway, enough about me, let's get back to Bloody Babs. 
Over the following years, she was married two more times and had another child, but her attempts to lead a normal life were all failures. She couldn't get it together, so she became a prostitute. You know, like you do. During World War II, she worked near the Oakland Army Base and a couple other military spots. In 1942, she, along with some other friends, flew down to Long Beach in San Diego. She was arrested here on vice charges. At one point when she was 22, she managed to land a job working at a brothel in San Francisco. That probably doesn't sound like the ideal job to most of us, but I can assume that it's an upgrade from working the streets. Working here led into her getting involved in drugs and gambling. She met a lot of career criminals and ex-cons. Being the good friend that she was, she ended up with five years in prison for perjury because she was an alibi witness for two petty criminals and lied on the stand. After this stint in prison, she moved to Nevada. She worked in a hospital and as a waitress while there. As you can probably guess, she got bored of this pretty quickly and jumped on a bus headed for LA. She got a room on Hollywood Boulevard and went back to prostitution. In 1953, she married a bartender named Henry Graham and had a third child with him. It was through Henry that Babs met Jack Santo and Emmett Perkins. She started an affair with Perkins, of course. He told her about a widow by the name of Mabel Monahan, who was known to keep a large amount of cash in her house in Burbank. In March of 1953, Babs, Perkins, and Santo joined up with two other men and conned their way into Mabel's home. It was Barbara who used her feminine innocence and charm to convince Mabel to let her use the phone. Once Mabel opened the door, the men busted in and demanded all the money and other valuables she had in the house. She refused to give them anything. At this point, Babs pistol-whipped Mabel before suffocating her with a pillow. Good lord. A 64-year-old woman's life for nothing. They made off with exactly zero dollars and none of the jewels that were hidden in the house. They had apparently missed almost 15 grand of valuables that were hidden in a purse in a closet. Sometime after the murder, a few of the gang members were arrested. One of them, named John True, agreed to testify against Barbara in exchange for immunity. In court, he testified against her, but she protested her innocence. It was at this point that the press nicknamed her Bloody Babs as a way to reflect how terribly the public felt about her disgusting actions. Barbara tried to get another inmate to hire a friend to give her a fake alibi in exchange for 25 grand, but the inmate was working with the police to get her vehicular manslaughter sentence reduced. An officer was going to pose as the friend Barbara was with the night of the murder under the condition that she confessed her role in the crime to him. The officer recorded the conversation and used it not only as a confession, but also to discredit her on the stand. When asked about this incident, Babs replied, Oh, haven't you ever been desperate? Do you know what it means to not know what to do? Barbara was convicted, but the other inmate was immediately released from jail with a sentence that was commuted to time served. Babs, as well as two of the other accomplices, were sentenced to death. She appealed her sentence, but it was upheld, and she was transferred to San Quentin State Prison to await her death. She was scheduled to be executed on June 3, 1955, at 10 a.m. They really didn't drag it out back then, did they? I guess they liked getting shit done fast in the 50s. 
California's governor at the time, Goodwin J. Knight, stayed the execution until 10.45, and then again until 11.30. Barber protested, stating, Why do they torture me? I was ready to go at 10 o'clock. At 11.28, she was led into the gas chamber. She requested a blindfold so she wouldn't have to look at the observers. Her last words were, Good people are always so sure they're right. No, Barbara. Good people don't pistol whip old ladies before suffocating them with a pillow. A movie was made about this case. It's called I Want to Live. It suggests that Babs was actually innocent, but a lot of the film was fictionalized. Some have questioned her guilt, saying that most of what she was convicted on was the testimony of John True, who probably would have said just about anything to save his own skin. But there was evidence that pointed to her, as well as a confession. A reporter for the Los Angeles Daily Mirror named Jean Blake called the movie a dramatic and eloquent piece of propaganda for the abolishment of the death penalty. There is no information on Barbara's last meal. This next case I'm going to cover makes me want to puke my guts out, which is saying a lot. I can't say I have a strong stomach anymore. Before I had kids, blood and guts didn't bother me. I was a die-hard fan of the Saw franchise. But this case is one that got at me far more than the DV cases I've covered before. I know I said earlier that most states don't actually execute women. That's not a lie. You can Google that shit and find the same results as me. Arkansas, though, they had a reason to. Christina Marie Riggs was born in Lawton, Oklahoma in 1971. Her childhood was a fucking mess, to be blunt. She claimed to have been sexually abused by her stepbrother between the ages of 7 and 13. At 13, she was abused by a neighbor as well. And by 14, like most of us troubled kids, she was drinking, smoking, and eating to the point of obesity. It's okay, Christina. It happens to the best of us. But most of us don't go on to do the horrible shit that you did. Her weight was a major problem for her, and she is quoted as saying, I felt that no boy liked me because of my weight, so I became sexually promiscuous because I thought that was the only way I could have a boyfriend. Sex has consequences. We all find that out eventually. Christina gave birth to a baby boy in January 1988 and put him up for adoption. Thank God. After high school, she went on to become a licensed practical nurse. And once again, in October 1991, she got pregnant. The father of this little boy ran off immediately after finding out. She kept this one, though, and named him Justin. A little while later, she got back with her ex, a man by the name of John Riggs, who moved in with her and married her in July 1993. She got pregnant again, but this one, unfortunately, ended in a miscarriage. This loss, along with her failing marriage, led Christina into a deep depression, which I totally understand. Not to get too personal, but just so you understand why I have any empathy for this bitch, I know the pain of having a miscarriage. I've gone through it three times. So I can see why she was so fucked up in the head. When I tell you what she did, though, you will be shaking your head. Her mental state was apparently so bad that she got on Prozac. In 1994, she got pregnant again and gave birth to a little girl named Shelby in December. 
They moved to Sherwood, Arkansas in 1995 to be close to Christina's mother. Her marriage to John finally ended and she was left to take care of herself and the kids alone. Finances were already tight, but with the child support payments being irregular and costs of childcare being so high, things spun out of control very quickly. She told one interviewer that suicide seemed like the only thing. It came out in court that she was making $17,000 a year doing 12-hour shifts at the hospital and that her kids' fathers were keeping up on their child support payments. I'm not sure what seventeen grand is in 2023 money, but I can tell you that working 12 hours a day, especially six days a week, will stuff your bank account. I can also tell you that working 12 hours a day, six days a week, is draining as fuck and does not combine well with poor mental health. No matter how much they're paying you or how easy your job is, that shit is not easy to do. The man who prosecutor, Larry Jegley, told reporters that he didn't buy her excuses for her actions. He said, simply put, she's a self-centered, selfish, premeditated killer who did the unspeakable act of taking her own children's lives. Yep, there it is. I'm sure you probably made that assumption. She killed her kids. After going through what I can only imagine is the emotional hell of putting one up for adoption as well as losing one. Jegley further stated, she used every excuse in the world. I think the jury just saw her as the manipulative, self-centered person she really and truly is. She claimed she was horribly depressed. She was overweight. She was a single mom and she didn't have enough money. My response to that is, welcome to America. Plenty of folks are in far worse situations than she was. And goddamn do I agree with this dude 100%. We all struggle sometimes. The solution isn't to kill the only people in your life that will love you unconditionally. So we know the why, I guess. We at least know her excuses, whether they're valid or not is another story. But what exactly did Christina do? While being a nurse, her plan was to inject her kids with undiluted potassium chloride. In case this is your first last meal and you don't know what that shit does, it's one of the drugs they use to execute people. It's the one that stops the heart. But what Christina didn't know was that if it's undiluted, the drug causes severe burning as it flows through the body, like a fire inside your veins. In addition to the potassium chloride, Christina got her hands on some Elevil, which is an antidepressant, as well as morphine. The fact that she's treating her kids the way prisons treat their condemned is just nasty. So on November 4th, 1997, she gave five-year-old Justin and almost three-year-old Shelby some Elevil to help put them to sleep. She then put them to bed. At 10 p.m., she injected Justin with undiluted potassium chloride. Because of the horrible pain it caused, he woke up screaming in terror. To stop his screams, Christina smothered him with a pillow. When she moved on to Shelby, she decided to skip the injection altogether as she had seen what pain it caused her son. I mean, good on you, I guess, for not being a torturer in addition to being a murderous skank, but fuck. She smothered Shelby as well and then placed both kids in her bed and covered them with a blanket. She wrote several suicide notes, took 28 Elevil pills, and injected herself with enough undiluted potassium chloride to kill five people. So basically, Christina executed herself and cut the state out as the middleman. Okay, so I've refrained from making any fat jokes through this whole thing, but I have to just step in right here and say, God damn, 
Did you really think 28 Elevil and 5 Potassium Chlorides was enough? I mean, if you look her up, you'll understand why I'm saying that. I'm also someone that would probably require at least a double dose of Sleep Forever pills, so you can't bitch at me for fat shaming. I'm also fat. I like food more than I like exercise. It's a problem. I haven't quite reached Christina Riggs levels, but you can definitely tell from looking at me that I enjoy the greasier things in life. Christina died, right? That's why we're here. Of course not. The day after this horrible act, her mother found her and rushed her to the hospital. At her trial in 1998, she claimed that she was not guilty by reason of insanity and cited her acute depression as the cause for this whole ordeal. The jury convicted her anyway, obviously. I have to cut in right here and say that I despise women who kill their children and play the mental illness card. The only one I've ever known of to actually have a legitimate mental illness is Andrea Yates. She had postpartum depression like a motherfucker and her husband kept pumping babies into her anyway. That was a recipe for darkness. Having a bad day or a bad year or a bad life is not an excuse to murder your kids. You have to take all that shitty energy and anger and use it to work on yourself and make your life better. All of Christina's issues could have been fixed had she put in some effort. Something that really bothers me about this one is that Shelby is literally a month younger than me. By now, she'd be graduating from college, maybe married, maybe have a couple kids of her own. Maybe she'd have a true crime podcast talking about the monsters in this world who got the death penalty. But instead, she had to be born to a monster. Justin was just a couple years older, my brother's age. Maybe he would have grown up to be a protective big brother and help his sister fight through the inevitable trauma of being raised by someone with depression. This case really fucking bothers me. My mother has also struggled with depression for pretty much her entire life. Her story isn't mine to tell, but I will say there was a point that it got so bad she told my grandma she was going to drive her car off a cliff and take me with her. This would have been around the same time Christina was fighting her mental illness demons and plotting to take her kids with her off the potassium chloride cliff. I could have been this story. The parallels between Christina and my mother, as well as young Christina and my younger self, are really disorienting. The difference here, though, is that I didn't smother my kids because I was struggling and couldn't see a way out. I embraced motherhood and used it to help me get my shit together and become a better person for my kids. If you're a struggling mom, ask for help. Bite that shame bullet and just get some fucking help before you hurt yourself or your babies. Christina Marie Riggs was executed on May 2nd, 2000 by lethal injection. She asked for the death penalty. She never wanted an appeal. It seems fitting for her to go this way. In prison, she wouldn't have to worry about someone smothering her with a pillow if the drugs didn't work. Her last words were, There's no way words can express how sorry I am for taking the lives of my babies. Now I can be with my babies as I always intended. She also said, I love you, my babies. If you really loved them, Christina, you wouldn't have suffocated them with a fucking pillow. You would have carried out this murder-suicide with the suicide first or gotten yourself some help instead of ending the lives of two innocent little kids. Her last meal was a supreme pizza, a salad, 
fried okra, cherry limeade, and a strawberry shortcake for dessert. So far in this episode, I've covered two different scenarios in which women kill. There is a third one, however, and it seems far more common than any others. After all, who doesn't like easy money? Margie Velma Barfield was born into a large family on October 23, 1932, in North Carolina. She was the oldest girl and the second of nine children. Like we hear a lot of these large families from yesteryear, God, I hate that word, there were claims of abuse. Margie said her father raped and beat her, but this was disputed by other relatives. She dropped out of school and got married to a man named Thomas. With him, she had two kids by the age of 19. In 1966, Thomas was in a car accident and suffered some head trauma that caused him to be unable to work. Their happy marriage deteriorated because of this. Velma got a job at a store to help support the family. Like most unemployed men of this era, fight me. Thomas started drinking heavily and became an alcoholic. Velma started taking antidepressants and tranquilizers to get through her daily stresses. Her life had become miserable. This downward spiral ended in a mental breakdown and she became addicted to various drugs. Thomas died in a house fire in 1969, and it may not have been accidental. Just one year later in 1970, Velma got remarried to a man named Jennings Barfield. He would die just six months later, but not from a house fire. It was heart complications. In 1974, Velma experienced another loss. Her mother had gotten ill and had symptoms of diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, but she made a full recovery. During the Christmas season that year, she caught the same illness and it ended up killing her on December 30th. Velma took a job caring for the elderly in 1976. She began working for an elderly couple, Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. Montgomery fell ill and died on January 29, 1977. Just six weeks later, Dolly would show signs of having the same illness that killed Velma's mother. She died on March 1, 1977. Later on that year, Velma took another caretaking job for a 76-year-old woman named Record Lee, who had broken her leg. Lee's husband, John, started to have stomach pain along with diarrhea and vomiting. He died soon after these symptoms started. Velma got into a relationship with Stuart Taylor, a widower and tobacco farmer. Velma, still entrenched in her addiction, had taken to forging checks from his bank account to pay for her fix. At some point, she got scared that she had been caught, and shortly after this, Stuart also died. This would be her downfall. An autopsy determined that Stuart had arsenic in his system. After Velma was arrested, they exhumed the body of Jennings Barfield and conducted an autopsy on him. As you can probably guess, he also had arsenic in his system. Velma eventually confessed to the murders of her mother Lillian Bullard, Dolly Edwards, and John Henry Lee. Though she had confessed to these crimes, she was only charged with Stuart Taylor's murder. Velma tried to convince the jury that she only intended to make her victims sick so she could nurse them back to health while finding a job to repay the money that she had stolen from them. They weren't convinced. Probably didn't help that Velma didn't even try to show remorse in court. 
She appeared cold and uncaring on the stand and even clapped for the DA when he made his closing arguments. They convicted her on this single count of murder and she was sentenced to death. While on death row, Velma managed to get off the drugs that had clouded her judgment for so many years. She still couldn't explain why she killed, though. Like most other people I've come across who have been given a death sentence, Velma became a born-again Christian. Again with this, seriously, sin as much as you want, take as many lives as you want, but Jesus saves and all that. I'm pretty sure this was just another manipulation because a lot of her appeals included testimony from religious leaders on her behalf. The Supreme Court rejected four of her appeals and Velma finally decided that she wanted to die with dignity and told her attorney to drop all appeals the day before she was scheduled to be executed. North Carolina offers both lethal injection and the gas chamber. Velma went with lethal injection. At 2 a.m. on November 2, 1984, she dressed in pink pajamas and was prepped for her demise. Her IV lines were inserted and they started a saline drip before wheeling her into the death chamber. In North Carolina at this time, the actual administration of the lethal drugs was done by volunteers. There were three syringes in each IV line, and one of them was a dummy to prevent anyone from knowing who actually killed her. She was pronounced dead at 2.15 a.m. after a very uncomplicated execution. In probably her only decent moment in life, Velma had asked that her organs be used for transplants. Unfortunately for her, though, due to her heart being stopped for 10 minutes, the only things that could be used were her corneas and some skin tissue. She couldn't face her last meal, instead asking a guard to get her some cheese doodles and a Coke. I can't find anything on her last words, but she released a statement before she was executed that read, I know that everybody has gone through a lot of pain, all the families connected, and I am sorry, and I want to thank everybody who have been supporting me all these six years. While doing some research for this episode, I found a case that hits extremely close to home. It bothered me on so many levels. This one is a roller coaster, so buckle up. On the morning of November 17, 1991, a resident of West Jordan, Utah, called 911 to report that his son was bleeding and his fingers had been cut off. When police arrived at the home, they found Sam Castanis in the middle of what can only be described as a scene from a horror movie. His wife Margaret and their three children had all been stabbed to death. Okay, that's it. Case closed. Man slaughtered his family. We've seen this one a million times. Sam was arrested, obviously, and despite his claims of innocence, he was brought to trial. His guilt seemed pretty much undeniable until Dr. Joseph Burton examined the bodies. All three of the kids had defensive wounds. Sam's wife, Margaret, did not. It came out in court that Margaret had struggled with depression and talked about suicide frequently. That, combined with the blood of all three children on her shirt, pretty much sealed the deal in this case. Sam was innocent. He had been railroaded by the West Jordan Police Department and the prosecution. He had maintained his innocence throughout the trial. Sam had been in the garage drinking coffee and doodling, only to find that horror show when he went back inside. The jury powered through all the heartbreaking evidence. They cried. They wondered about certain things they hadn't been told during the trial, but in the end, the truth prevailed. 
Jurors were disgusted with the entire case against Sam. They were very critical of the West Jordan police for how they handled this case. One juror said the police had their minds pretty much made up from the beginning that Sam had done the killings. That is not how you go into an investigation. You go into it with an open mind and investigate every avenue before you start throwing capital murder charges at people. And yeah, I'm a bit touchy on this subject. Maybe one day I will be able to tell you why. Margaret Ann Castanis slaughtered her children before stabbing herself in the heart. An innocent man was cleared of any guilt and was able to return to his job and attempt to pick up the pieces of his obliterated life. This case bothered me so fucking much. Even 30 years later, the West Jordan Police Department can't be bothered to do a proper investigation before throwing the book at someone. Sam Castanis escaped four capital murder charges and probably also the death penalty. I'm so grateful that this man had a jury that would take the time to actually go over the evidence rather than take it at face value and put him to death. Margaret Castanis murdered her kids and then gave herself the death penalty. I'm glad she got what she deserved, but I'm left with a broken heart for those kids. They didn't do anything wrong. Their mom was just unhinged and wouldn't get help. I'm going to close this one out with one that has me crying at my kitchen table. There are some people in this world who truly do not deserve to be here. I'll do my best to get through this without blubbering into the mic, but forgive me if I do because this one hurt. On December 15, 2004, an Alabama woman by the name of Tierra Capri Gobble woke up to find her four-month-old son Phoenix unresponsive in his crib. Her first mistake was calling one of her friends rather than 911. Said friend went to find Tierra's father, Edgar Parrish, who ended up being the one to call 911. By the time paramedics arrived, there was nothing that could be done to save little Phoenix. I personally have nothing good to say about any child protection or family service organizations. I feel the same about them as I do about the police in most cases. In the vast majority of cases, they hang the innocent and let the guilty go free. Rarely do they get it right. You can fight me on that one if you want. I'm a true crime fiend. I've heard thousands of cases. A lot of those involve children. And a good chunk of those cases have DCF or CPS or whatever the fuck other government mess getting involved and screwing up. It's a broken system. This case was no different started out kind of seeming like they were doing their jobs, but in the end, they failed a four-month-old little boy. Just 24 hours after Phoenix was born, DCF took him from Piera and put him in the custody of his grandfather, Edgar Parrish. I'm seeing conflicting information about who Edgar is in relation to the baby. I've seen grandfather and great-uncle. Who the hell knows? It's Alabama. Maybe he's both. I'm kidding. Get off my back. There will be plenty of polygamy jokes when we get to Utah. I'm just doing my part to try to lighten this fucking travesty of a situation. Apparently Edgar was also taking care of Tierra's other child that the state had taken from her due to abuse and neglect. This woman should not have been having more kids. She clearly does not have any maternal instinct. In the early morning hours of December 15th, Tierra was having a difficult time getting Phoenix to sleep. He was, in her words, fussing. It happens. That's what babies do, especially my daughter. 
God damn that child didn't stop screaming from birth until age three. <laughs> you learn to deal with it. You set the baby down and walk away. At around 1am, Tierra fed him a bottle and then put him back down to sleep. At 9am, she checked on him and found that he was playing, so she left him and went back to sleep. She woke up again at 11am and went to check on Phoenix again. He was unresponsive and not breathing. Paramedics were eventually called and this little boy was rushed to the hospital. The ER doctor who cared for Phoenix testified that he had bruises, contusions on his face, scalp, and chest. They were everywhere. They did x-rays which showed that Phoenix had a skull fracture, fractures to both wrists, and a fracture to his right upper arm. The doctor also testified that it would take significant force to fracture a skull. The autopsy report stated that he also had several fractured ribs. Any of those injuries would have been extremely painful. This poor baby. Holy fuck. <sighs> Several hours after Phoenix was taken to the hospital, the bitch that brought him into this world was arrested. Tierra spoke with an officer and told him that she was Phoenix's primary caretaker despite Edgar Parrish being his guardian. I should probably mention that there was a protective order in place to keep Tierra away from her kids. The only reason she had any contact with them at all is that her father uncle let her and her boyfriend move in with him. Why he allowed this is beyond me. Tierra also told the officer that she would get frustrated with Phoenix when he wouldn't sleep. For some reason, I feel like she expected him to sleep constantly and leave her with plenty of time for herself. Anyone with a brain can tell you that's not how babies work. She claimed it was possible that his ribs could have been broken by holding him too tightly, and that she might have accidentally smacked his head into the side of a crib while trying to reach inside for a blanket. A witness for the state, Tori Jordan, testified that she had known Tierra for a couple years and had babysat Tierra's daughter during that time. She also said that Tierra told her, if I can't have my kids, no one can. If that's not a red flag, I don't know what is. Tierra took the stand in her own defense and tried to blame her boyfriend for what happened. She claimed he was abusive and domineering. She also claimed to have seen bruises on Phoenix the week before he died, but didn't do anything about it because she was scared. Okay, this is probably going to piss some people off, but it needs to be said. First of all, you're not supposed to be around your kids. Second, why are you bringing a domineering abuser around your kids? Rule number one when you're a mom is you put your children first. So even if this dude was abusive, why didn't Tierra do the decent thing and keep her kids safe? Oh wait, I think I know the answer to this one. Because he's not the problem, she is. Tierra admitted that she was the only person to have any contact with Phoenix for the 10 hours leading up to his death. The reason she didn't call 911 when she found him was that she didn't want to get in trouble for being around her kids. The state brought a letter into the trial that Tierra had written where she took responsibility for her son's death. She writes, It's my fault that my son died, but I didn't mean for it to happen. Babies are fragile, but after raising three of them, I can tell you without a doubt that it takes more than a tight hold and a smack into a crib to cause the damage that poor Phoenix had. She beat him to death because she got tired of him being awake. This was no accident. 
The jury in this case convicted Tierra of capital murder and recommended a death sentence, which the court agreed with. Tierra appealed it, though, on several different grounds, one of which was that the especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel aggravating circumstance was not applied correctly to her case. How the fuck is beating a four-month-old baby to death not heinous, atrocious, and cruel? The court stated the offense was committed upon a small child, four months old, by striking his head against a hard surface causing trauma and internal injuries. The victim had fractures of the 4th, 5th, and 6th ribs, and bleeding was observed between the scalp and his skin, as well as between the skull and brain. This act by a mother shocks the conscience of this court. This was a callous and calculated act, and in this court's opinion, was especially cruel, heinous, and atrocious as compared to other capital offenses. This was a brutal beating that caused tremendous pain and suffering upon this small child, who was helpless and unable to defend himself. The mother defendant, Tierra Gobble, was not supposed to be around the child because the state of Florida had given custody of the child to Mr. Parrish, a roommate of the defendant, due to her abuse and neglect. Apparently, the pattern of abuse and neglect continued until she ended the life of this small child. Her last fateful act on the small child only showed her total disregard of any feelings for her own child and demonstrates very clearly why the jury's unanimous verdict of especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel as compared to other capital offenses was correct and supported by the evidence. Her death sentence was upheld, but she's not dead yet. Vieira currently sits on death row. The state of Alabama has yet to execute her. They put two people down in 2022 for less heinous crimes. Why they're letting this one continue to waste oxygen is beyond me. That's it for this special last tale, all about women and how fucked up they can be. Maybe I've opened your eyes a little? If you enjoyed this episode, please go check out my other ones and subscribe wherever you found me. Leave a rating and review, all that jazz. I'm currently available on Rumble, Podbean, Podcast Addict, and I believe Amazon Podcasts. You can also get me on Instagram at LastMealPod. There are no dead men's evils in this episode, so I can't leave you with my usual quote. I found one by Johnny Ramistola that seems fitting. Not sure who that is, but fuck it, the quote works. Beware of pretty faces that you find. A pretty face can hide an evil mind. See you next time.